0: So, we're going to do a somewhat different manifesto podcast uh, today. Uh, Jake, as some of you know, lives in Israel. And I think it was uh, difficult for both of us to do the normal kind of episode that we had scheduled when everything was so much on our minds. And also, Jake is a uh, journalist at Tablet a Jewish magazine which has been covering the unfolding conflict in Israel and Gaza and elsewhere and so I thought we would just have a conversation and also answer some listener questions about the conflict so uh Jake it's good to see you man. Phil it is really
1: good to see you and it's um It's especially good right now to talk with friends and hear from friends. And I'm going to approach this, uh, as honestly and straightforwardly as I'm capable of. And that begins with, um, you know, what I can and can't say. And what I can say is, uh, how I see things from my perspective as a, a Jewish American living in Israel, who um is deeply invested in uh my Jewishness my Americanness and the future of Israel um for my children who are growing up here and you know I, I have a great a deep deep love for this country that is in part um in part for what it created, and uh, the the miracle of the creation of the state of Israel in the modern world, which uh, you know I, I think that the history of this has been lost in a lot of the kind of revisionist and current um, propaganda and sort of counter mythology about it. But very briefly, for people who don't understand you know, the U.S. didn't help create Israel. The U.S. declared an arms embargo on Israel at the moment of its creation, effectively, after extending diplomatic recognition to it. The British didn't help create Israel, despite the Balfour Declaration. You know, the the early Zionists fought to kick the British out of mandatory Palestine in order to create Israel, while the British were funding the Arab League. And You know, very much like the present moment, the British being... The imperial power of their day were funding both sides in, in much the same way that the US now funds both sides of the current conflict. And, um, and so I, I say this as a partisan of this country, as somebody who is um, intimately familiar with war as something that is not simply tragic in its own right, but capable of deforming entire nations. And yet, as somebody who believes that war is still a necessary means to achieve peace in the world, which is, to me, ultimately the principal just cause of any war is to secure a peace. And so that's a kind of abstract way of saying that I was here with my children on Shabbat, on Simcha's Torah, which was the end of this cycle of uh, Jewish festivals with Sukkot and the the beginning of the reading the Torah again anew when, you know, what we thought initially was the attack occurred on the the kibbutzes around uh, what's called the Gaza envelope in southern Israel, and and we quickly discovered was a massacre of civilians, uh, men, women, children, old people, uh, a, a kind of uh, you know a, a raiding party. It's uh, people seem to have difficulty. Understanding what occurred, but it it makes sense in the history of Arab Islamic conquest. And it makes sense if you follow the news in Boko Haram and you understand what a raiding party does. And so, um, so I, 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 once I understood that was what was happening, uh, you know, I don't know, my thoughts turned to my family. I have young children. We tried to get safe. um, And assess the situation and have been trying to um, basically catch up to events ever since. So I don't pretend to any expertise about any of this. I don't pretend to any moral authority other than my own conscience. And, uh, uh, you know, and I, I am living through this moment by moment as other people are. That's where I am now.
0: Yeah. And now we're sort of sitting on the brink of whatever is going to be the, the fallout of this. Uh, I wanted to, to ask you, you were at, you were at, um, at 9/11 and you were a volunteer at Ground Zero. And you wrote, oh God, years ago now, about that. You said, away from ground zero for the first time, I wanted to get back. I'd seen something new and monstrous that I couldn't turn away from and something else, something noble that urged me even closer. I'd never felt either before, and I've never since seen one without the other. Not long after 9-11, I joined the army and later spent 15 months in Iraq. Soon, I'll leave for Afghanistan on one of the last military rotations before the projected withdrawal of the United States in 2014. This story of mine and the thousands others will be 13 years old by the time that war is over. It's been 10 years of thinking and fighting of wrestling with Salafis and war profiteers and my own mercenary ego, which had seen in violence and war not only a means of service and sacrifice, but also the chance for grandeur the force of history breathed into my own small story. Now for the anniversary of that inaugural moment when history began, we remember it in private and public, sometimes with prayer or ceremony, and sometimes with theme park anniversary discounts for first responders and soldiers and platitudes about honoring heroes. It's harder now to separate what is solemn from what is kitsch, but in the beginning, inside the smoke at ground zero, I could see the connections. I wondered, especially now after your Afghanistan deployment, after um, a lot more years thinking about war and a response to a horrific attack, whether there are any similarities, either um, useful. Or cautionary, um, in those two moments,
1: I, I think both. I mean, the the one of the things I remember was when I I was in Boston when the nine eleven attack happened, and I can't remember if it was the day after, or two days later. I got on a bus, and I came back to New York, and then I walked from Port Authority down to Ground Zero. So that you know, I or no i'm sorry i walked from port authority which is the the bus depot in new york to union square initially cuz i you weren't allowed to volunteer at ground 0 or, or i wasn't sure what was going on I'm trying to remember i think i was supposed to meet my brother at ground 0 that's where the salvation army was and um and i remember on the walk down uh seeing like no war for oil protesters yeah and this was like september 14th or something like that and I just I remember thinking like there's not even a war yet what do you mean no war for oil there's and I remember feeling um, I, I just have no space in my mental uh, or psychological or emotional makeup for that kind of I don't know if it's anti-war sentiment or, or pacifism. I'm not sure what that is. But to this day, I'm totally alienated from whatever that is, that September 14th, no war for oil sentiment. At the same time, I am more convinced than I've ever been. I'm as certain of anything as I am of the fact that there is no just war that is not fought to secure peace for its people within their own homeland. What do I mean by that? The U.S. invasion of Afghanistan and the long occupation of Afghanistan, the passage you read, Phil, I think I wrote that in 2011 or something, and I, I thought the war was ending when yeah. I wrote that, and it, and it went on for another decade. That was not a war to secure peace for Americans inside their own homeland. And, uh, and, and all of its corruptions and all of its calamities to me in both their moral and strategic dimensions can be connected back to that failure to hold to the principal classical aim of warfare, which is to secure peace for the people within their own homeland, not to transform the world, not to exact vengeance, not to smite one's foes, you know. uh. So I see the rhetoric coming from the Israeli leadership and Netanyahu's speech the other day, invoking Isaiah as disaster is, not even principally in, in moral terms, but principally in strategic terms, because it suggests to me that the public facing approach, at least, is one that is not about securing peace for Israelis inside their own homeland, which is my wife and my children. And, and that's what I want. And what I hear from that in its official register, at least is an appeal to domestic constituencies inside Israel. Mm. I hear the, the same kind of populist militarist rhetoric that BB has used for a long time. And that was always somewhat callow and cynical. And I, I wrote a not very good piece about this in tablet in 2018 that, uh, I sent you that long, I thought, brilliant thread by Hussein Mansoor. Yeah. Um, and it reminded me of this thing I had written. And I wrote this piece in 2018. It was after Bibi had given this speech about how, you know, the the only thing respected in the world is strength and, and you know, the strong do what they will and the seek, the weak suffer what they must. You know, this was the speech he gave. and I, And I tried to say at the time, without much conviction, frankly, and and too mawkishly at points. But what I tried to say was, okay, the peace process has failed, right? Like the Oslo peace process, which was the Western-mediated attempt to force a two-state solution on the Israelis and Palestinians, was an abject failure. And the Israelis looked at it and saw it as leading directly to the Second Intifada and, and getting nothing out of it despite the repeated attempts to broker a, a deal with the Palestinian leadership, and and so the, the sort of dream of Oslo, which had been the the vision of the center left, and to some extent even as parts of the center right and of the left in Israel of land for peace and the two state solution, had ended in this kind of dismal failure, and Israelis had retreated from any prospect of a settlement with the Palestinians and had nurtured what we can now see was an incredibly costly fantasy and illusion, which was that we can marginalize the Palestinians to the extent that their political aspirations will just fade away over time. Right? Um, they don't really want to state, which is true, in my opinion, manifestly true, But that doesn't mean that they don't want something and that they don't have legitimate political aspirations. Um, And so I I tried to write this piece at the time saying sort of this is a dead end. Oslo is dead, but Bibi's sort of approach of just bluster and, and militarism, like there's no principle of power. There's no vision for what this does to secure peace for the future, and you need to secure peace for the future. All of which is to say, I am not encouraged by the official rhetoric coming from the Israelis. I don't think that a prolonged bombing campaign in Gaza is justifiable, absent a strategic victory. I I wrote a piece for Unheard about this that puts down my ideas more coherently. But look, this is the opportunity to lay something out which people need to understand. This is not a war between the Israelis and the Palestinians fighting in isolation. Any attempt to frame it in those terms betrays a fanatical ignorance, okay? Hamas is not a quote-unquote Palestinian nationalist group. For one thing, it's an offshoot of the Ikhwan, all right, it's a Muslim Brotherhood group that has explicitly, since its birth, been devoted to a uh, you know a, a pan-national uh, global struggle, which is the, the the founding core tenet of the Muslim Brotherhood itself, which is for a a you know the, the nationalism is a profane secular deviation from a global Islamic community, which is the aim of the Brotherhood. Now, it has also had a relationship with Iran going back two decades, which has waxed and waned over the years, but really was reconsummated in the aftermath of the Syrian civil war and of of the brutal Assad war on, on, on Syrians, including Palestinians in Syria, of course. And in the aftermath of that, in a new strategic architecture, a new geopolitical framework in which the Obama administration, and we can get into the reasons for why this occurred, the Obama administration propped up and empowered Iran as a, uh, a regional counterweight to Israel and Saudi Arabia, a newly empowered Iran, which was not only, you know, gifted billions of dollars literally in cash. You can look this up. You can look up the official accounts from Obama administration officials explaining why their cash deliveries to Tehran could only be delivered in cash because it wasn't possible to, uh, to you know, And we can put links in, in the show, whatever. But Iran, a newly empowered Iran reconciled with Hamas. And Hamas is part of a much larger regional framework, the axis of resistance, as it were, um, uh, you know, that includes Hezbollah, uh, you know, the the Nasrallah-led Hezbollah in Lebanon, includes Houthi forces in Yemen, includes the groups like Hezbollah and Al Haq that were killing US soldiers during the war in Iraq and which are now launched,
0: yeah launching minor attacks now yeah
1: now launching minor attacks but those groups in Iraq that are launching those attacks which are Iranian proxy forces were integrated into the new government of Iraq mm-hmm. as part of the counter ISIS campaign the Obama led counter ISIS campaign that took the the Iranian proxy militias in Iraq and uh, funded them through what was called the Hashid or the Popular Mobilization Forces, which was the popular army that got stood up when the original American funded and trained Iraqi army collapsed overnight during the ISIS onslaught, all of which is to say there is a new regional order in the Middle East that the U.S. has helped build and broker in which Iran is contending to be the regional hegemon in the Middle East. One of the, uh,
0: there was an uh, Iraqi politician describing the invasion of Iraq and its aftermath, who put it like this, the United States has baked Iraq like a cake and given it to Iran to eat.
1: Yes. And, And that all starts with George Bush and the invasion of Iraq, which was Revived what had been a moribund Iranian regime. So, in 2003, when the the Bush team decides we're going to invade Iraq and and bring them democracy at the barrel of a gun, Iran is moribund. Its demographics are are bad. All of its fundamentals are bad. Its currency is bad. Its demographics are bad. Its geostrategic position is bad. You know, it, it's all on the decline. And the invasion of Iraq is the first move that begins the ascent of Iran to regional hegemon. Bring this back to Hamas and Israel. We now know that there have been multiple reports, the standard, um, you know, the the hacks and idiots in the press who do nothing but run interference for the Democratic Party and and, um, have gotten everything wrong are immediately trying to discredit these reports. But it's very clear, not simply that Hamas is a an Iranian-funded uh, group. Proxy is a bit too strong in the case of Hamas. It's actually Palestinian Islamic Jihad, which is the other main terrorist group in Gaza, is the actual Iranian proxy group. But Hamas, multiple reports now in the New York Times, and the Wall Street Journal, in an Iranian expat publication, attesting to the fact that this is not just funding. There was operational planning. There was training. The Quds Force was involved. The IRGC was involved. Hezbollah was involved So, the, in planning the Hamas attack on Israel. So the Hamas attack on Israel was not a expression of Palestinian desperation. It wasn't an expression of a desire for a, a free Palestine or for the uh, the, the the freedom of Gaza, it was part of a larger regional strategic architecture in which Hamas functions alongside groups like Hezbollah within the Iranian-led order and, and politically relevant, of course, as many people have pointed out now, was this possibility of an approaching Israeli-Saudi rapprochement. And Um, I I think that that is not entirely wrong. But what people miss when they talk about this is there is an implication that the Palestinian Hamas was desperate to reassert, uh, you know, the, the visibility for the Palestinian cause. First of all, as I've pointed out, Hamas is not interested in the Palestinian cause. That's a total misreading, a total misnomer. And if you simply listen to, Hamas leadership, and if you read some of the Arab language press in translation, instead of listening to like dilettantes and halfwits in the West who impose this framework on it, you'll see that that's not how they conceive of their own struggle. The part that that gets wrong also, though, is that the Palestinian uh, cause as such, and Hamas in particular, had been doing much better over the last two years. it had in the trump administration the biden administration had turned funding back on they had turned the spigot back on both to iran which was funneling money directly and through qatar to Hamas and through the palestinian authority and through direct payments to gaza and there was more political salience and, and more political attention coming from the biden administration so it's not all of which is to say it's it's not that like Biden administration payments to Palestinian authority or to Hamas led to this attack directly but the point is that it wasn't that Hamas and the Palestinian cause had been you know uh, it wiped away from global vet visibility it, it was this was, they had momentum behind them Iran had momentum, Iran had the initiative, which brings me back to what do I see is a, a just war for Israel? And I use just war, as I said, you know, we can talk about, uh, we can talk about anything you want, Phil. But, but again, my point is like a just war, a, a war worth fighting is one that has to regain the strategic initiative against Iran to restore a measure of peace to Israelis inside their own homeland not remake the middle east not remake hamas not i don't see any of those things as necessarily part of what i'm describing any you know what i'm saying is hamas is part of a larger iranian weapon system that is pointed directly at israel that threatens israel's existence which is the entire point of the the weapon system and which is you know Hezbollah in the north and Lebanon is part of it also. And Israel has to, this was a tremendous operational, tactical, strategic victory for Hamas and Iran. Iran is now attacking American soldiers installations in the Middle East and sort of probing attacks, you might say. They know where to hit where their missiles are likely to get intercepted and drones are likely to get intercepted. So these are sort of probing attacks to send signals, to, to test U.S. deterrence and U.S. strength. And they have the initiative right now. I mean, I'm, I try to see this as, 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 in as clear-eyed a way as I am capable of. And the clear-eyed assessment right now is that this is an absolute strategic disaster for Israel. And Israel needs to regain the strategic initiative and you don't regain the strategic initiative just by pummeling Gaza and you don't regain the strategic initiative by creating scenes of devastation and and, uh, civilian death. Gaza, whether or not Hamas is responsible for that because they've honeycombed their military infrastructure into, deliberately honeycombed their military infrastructure into a civilian population, that does not achieve a strategic victory. And the last point there is that the other nations in the Middle East who constitute Israel's defense in depth. So I'm not just talking here about the Abraham Accords partners like the UAE or possible reproachment with Saudi Arabia. I'm also talking about Egypt and Jordan, right? And it's the peace with these nations that, that constitutes Israel's defense in depth. If Israel cannot show the capability of establishing effective deterrence against Iran, it loses that defense, It loses that defense, that defense in depth and becomes existentially vulnerable. Right.
0: And this is one of the reasons why it seems like such a dangerous moment, right? I mean if you listen to, for example, like the commentary podcast, right? They are slavering for a ground invasion of Gaza and in sense that it did not start, you know, um weeks ago and you know doing interviews with people like tom cotton who are referencing the firebombing of tokyo and the bombing of dresden as previous models for um, justified air campaigns and you know um you know when i when i look at what happened i think it is Like I mean, it's just sort of straightforwardly obvious that what Hamas did obviously justifies and indeed demands a military response. If you cannot respond militarily to that, what the hell is the point of a military? But that doesn't mean you just do anything, right? And the And I also have, and I've mentioned this previously, grave concerns about the Netanyahu government going forward. I have concerns about their foresight, whether they have any kind of long-term vision at all for what the situation is supposed to look like after a military campaign. Um, I have questions about their competence and their ability to achieve even sort of military aims, right? They want to crush Hamas. What does that look like? How do you do that? How well, this is the problem. And then, this is the problem. Well, I, I just want to say one other, which is yeah. grave ethical concerns about them, right? Because I do not think that they value Palestinian life. I just don't. And uh, I think that there are a lot of reasons to look at a government that includes... <laughs> you know, people talk about the far-right faction, but, you know, some of the rhetoric from them is 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 horrifying, and yes, it's true that Hamas um, embeds itself among civilian populations, and, you know, that can be... But that doesn't mean that you don't take those civilian lives into account, and... And also just like the the pace and scale of the air campaign right now, um, you know, that can't be a targeted campaign. So I'm not sure. I
1: don't know about that last part. I don't know what a targeted campaign means. It's obvious that they're not carpet bombing, for instance. So the suggestion that they are carpet bombing coming, which I see coming from people who who don't understand and who, or who equate the scale of our ordinance with a indiscriminate air campaign is false. They are obviously trying to devastate Gaza and they are obviously doing it in a way that they know will lead to high civilian casualties right. and, and that will kill civilians. There's no doubt about any of that. But the, the problem that I have is that it's not that there are not It's not that I think you're wrong to have those questions about the Netanyahu government. The Netanyahu government is responsible for allowing this to happen. And I think there's an argument they they should have resigned already. They certainly need to resign the second that there's a a pause that allows that to occur. and, And Netanyahu should basically... He really never shows face in public life again after this and, and should remove himself entirely from public political life. That said- well, you, this By the way,
0: you, to, you were talking about sort of different funding screen, streams. I mean, one of the accusations yeah, Rosenberg made in the Atlantic was that, and this is a lot of folks is that he purposely propped up Hamas as a counterbalance to the more moderate PA. Listen, a, a lot and of it wasn't only- the transfer of, I, I, yeah, hundreds This is of true. Dollars. Yeah.
1: This is true. But, but that was a, there was a consensus behind that, mm-hmm. right? So that was also the consensus in Washington, D.C., that was slightly different, right? There's the cynical Netanyahu version, which is I'll allow this Qatari money to reach Hamas and I'll sort of tolerate Hamas as a counterweight to the Palestinian Authority. And then there is the technocratic D.C. version, which was, you know, the Robert Malley version uh, or, or the Ben Rhodes version, for that matter, or the Obama version, which was Hamas ultimately are rational actors who can be incentivized through payments in order to, uh, you know, reach some kind of reasonable political accommodation with Israel. So there's no doubt that that Netanyahu did that. Uh, it, it was a horrible, horrible error. There were very few people, frankly, calling him out on that error at the time because it was the conventional wisdom in Israel and in DC, for that matter, um, but ultimately, ultimately, the U.S. is not at war. Israel is at war, and the what, what you're talking about. I, I haven't heard the commentary podcast, so, but you know the the slavering for a ground invasion. I I don't know, and, and I I don't know how to read that because. There is an argument that had the ground invasion started already, it would have been lower. The, the, the toll on civilians, the toll on Israeli soldiers would have been lower than it's now going to be, not higher. And for all of your questions and doubts about the Netanyahu government, which I share, and I, I, I think I've been clear, but if I haven't, I'll be clearer nothing that has happened since October 7th has given me confidence in Israel's leadership, military or political. I have had a devastating loss of confidence and I, and I frankly wasn't honest enough with myself or outspoken enough prior to this in acknowledging what I knew to be some of the gross manifest failings of the, of the government. Um, but there's a reason why three months ago or whatever it was, four months ago, three months ago, I wrote, I wrote a very long piece in tablet arguing to end the U.S. aid relationship with Israel. And what I said in that piece was that the aid relationship had deformed the alliance between the U.S. and Israel, that the aid relationship had, had impeded the Israeli military from evolving tactically and strategically that it had Impeded Israel's domestic defense industry from producing what it needs, that it had led to a position for Israel of dependency, where Israel is operating as a protectorate of the U.S., one protectorate among many. This is how the U.S. runs its foreign policy now as an imperial power managing client states. And I, I blamed Bibi by name in that piece for going along with this and for allowing himself to be bought off. By aid which Israel doesn't need, uh, for allowing I- I Israel to, and and we see now that the consequence of that is that Israel sacrificed its sovereignty. And you can doubt Netanyahu's war plans. You can doubt the ethics. I do think people like you know the, the Smoltriches and Ben Gavirs are fairly marginalized at this point. They're playing to a domestic audience. Uh, but there's, you know, the fact that BB brought them into the government, you know, is bad enough. To fa- right. You know, so that, that's not to excuse any of that. But but I have grave, grave doubts about the competence, the ethics of the American leadership. Yeah. And I don't want Joe Biden or Jake Sullivan, uh, people who I consider to be psychopaths with no vision for the world whose leadership has ca- caused tremendous chaos in the Middle East and beyond.
0: Did you see Jake Sullivan's are, foreign policy, or, or sorry, foreign affairs article? Yeah, yeah
1: that, that was, uh, yeah, f- incredible. We'll get to that in a second. But look, just the point I'm making is, what can you remember another time in recent memory when uh, the US has sat on top of uh, Another country, an ally, not and and like micromanaged its war plans in this way. I mean, it's insane, and and I don't, you know, it's it's being done under for ostensibly whatever I don't know. I mean, yeah, allied.
0: yeah. This is we're like we're deeply involved in in war plans and I mean the Battle of Mosul, which folks are um, okay. Great. That's using a great example, as an example for right. what. Um, you know, to compare what going into Gaza might be like um, is, yeah, absolutely.
1: You're right. You're right. So, but that, that illustrates the point, right? So we should explain the
0: battle of Mosul. ISIS took Mosul and then there was a intense campaign to take it back um, where U.S. airstrikes were in support of the Iraqi army, as well as these sort of Iranian-backed militias that you mentioned. Uh, it was this sort of long battle, pretty devastating. I visited Mosul uh, in 2019 afterwards, and the center of Mosul was just shattered. Uh, devastating.
1: And- the estimates are 10,000 civilians killed. Yeah. I think there's something like 40,000 structures destroyed. Yeah. It was a massive aerial bombardment followed by brutal urban warfare, yeah. which is what urban warfare is. And the reason why, look, the to give people some sense of how this works, the standard combat power ratio, if you're on, uh, in the attack, and I, I know I'm sure this is true for the Marines as well, but for the Army, certainly, I think it's military-wide, is three to one. In yeah. other words, anytime you, as the attacking force, are uh, going to mountain attack. You want to have three times as many attackers as the enemy has defending, but in urban warfare, that ratio goes up to five to one. Why does it go up to five to one? Well, for one reason, because the enemy, being especially if it's an enemy that's had time to develop entrenched defenses, has the advantage, a, a huge advantage in urban warfare, because there are all these obstacles, including civilians, but also including built, you know. Buildings to hide in, rubble, lines of sight that make it difficult to see, all, all of this stuff. So the defender has the advantage. The other reason why it's five to one, which is the sort of corollary of that, is you know your own soldiers are going to die at a higher rate. So you need to go in with a more robust attacking force to compensate for the, the deaths you expect to take so you can maintain the initiative throughout the battle. But the, the more... I guess, apt thing for what we were just talking about is you're right, Phil, that's the appropriate analogy. But Israel now finds itself in the position of the Iraqi government, right, the Israeli government, which has forfeited its sovereignty in in some very fundamental way, and is now being stage managed in the same way that Baghdad was stage managed in the course of the the war uh, to liberate Mosul. The difference is that you know, look. I, I want U.S. troops as far from all of this as possible. I don't believe that there is a genuine need for the deployment of the aircraft carriers into the Mediterranean. I, I don't. I'm not convinced that was necessary. I don't think the U.S. needs to be directly involved at all. Yeah. I think the best thing for the U.S. would be to support Israel and disengage more from the Middle East, pull troops out of Iraq, pull troops out of Syria, stop creating targets of opportunity for Iran. So I don't want the U.S. involved in this at all, but the people, I, I view the Biden administration as both directly responsible for creating the strategic environment in which this occurred by its policy of both reproachment and funding of Iran on the one hand, and also of what it called regional integration, which was trying to essentially push the Israelis to to sort of integrate with Lebanon, which is a euphemism for Hezbollah, and so I and, and for a general incompetence, senility, arsonism that has that promoted all of this, and I I don't want them having anything to do with this in a direct way. Now I understand that that's. Impossible, and that's Bibi's fault, and it's the Israeli government's fault for agreeing to this aid relationship and for expecting the U.S. to act as its protector. But all of that being said, when you're attacked in the way that Israel was attacked, you either demand your sovereignty or you don't, and my And I want Israel to act as a sovereign nation and to defend itself and defend its interests without looking to the U.S. for approval or veto power. And if that means that, you know, Israel is is on its own or or that it damages the U.S.-Israel relationship, then that's something you come back to after the fact. But there are also ways to negotiate this such that you can recoup a measure of necessary essential sovereignty without totally alienating the us and i don't see that happening i'm i'm not encouraged by any of this and
0: so maybe we should go on to some of the questions and actually we sort of already began answering one of them because iska asked us i'd like you to discuss urban warfare the difference between operating in iraq and or afghanistan and what israel is facing in gaza where already talked about mosul i think that you know the there there there's some significant differences between probably Mosul and Gaza, if if folks are going to go in, a lot has been made about the extent of preparations that Hamas probably has. In Mosul, there are around 12,000 fighters, I think, ISIS fighters. I believe Hamas has significantly more. And also, um, it's just, it's a very dense urban environment. It's not clear how the civilians are going to be able to get out right
1: um well the the attempt by the israelis was to broadcast you need to evacuate to the to southern gaza yeah and look there's a there's a moral obligation that israel has but i view israel's moral obligations as essentially independent of the demands of the international community which i see as fundamentally cynical and immoral and i and that's that's you know difficult to negotiate you might say like convenient to say because it frees israel to act however it wants but so, so, i don't Jake, I'm, not, I'm not i'm not i'm not it 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 don't believe that the international community has any moral authority in this regard whatsoever
0: so the one of the reasons that i bring up the civilians is not not simply for the moral issue which is significant but also like if the civilians don't get out it makes it a lot harder right
1: if the civilians don't get out it makes it a lot harder look the 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 sort of like cavalier psychopathic there are no civilians in gaza Stuff is um, grotesque. Of course, there are civilians in Gaza. But the the problem, the real problem, is that many of the civilians in Gaza are sympathetic to Hamas, are folded into Hamas operations.
0: Well, this, and this is the other thing. In, in Mosul, you had a population that actually wanted to be liberated for the most part. Right. <clears throat> so th-
1: this is what I'm getting at.
0: Right? And, and there's a very. The civilians significant in, in Gaza, look. May not like Hamas, right? But they're not going to feel warmly towards the Israelis, and especially not after the. That's pandemic. exactly right. Especially not after. That's the exactly right. Why would you?
1: They may not like Hamas, but they certainly prefer Hamas to an, you know, invading Israeli soldier. Um, and and the 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 larger point here is that, as Phil is saying, you know, so when when the Islamic State came into Mosul, they were coming in from Western Iraq, from the, the desert in Anbar, Al-Anbar, and from Deir ez and Raqqa yep. and Syria, right? And what were they coming with? They were coming with uh, tactical vehicles, right? So like pickup trucks, heavy machine guns, um, some uh, limited anti-air, maybe some limited, you know, um, RPGs, um IEDs, but they, it was a fast moving blitz force, right? It was essentially like a, 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 just a light infantry force, you know, sort of rapid maneuver light infantry force. Now, when they got to Mosul, they were able to capture some of what the Iraqi army left behind. So they that strengthened them. But you know, their ability to prepare Mosul for siege, their ability to receive new shipments of weapons into Mosul was very, very limited compared to Hamas. Hamas has had years There, there are an estimated, and this is the real target of the Israeli operation. It appears the real target we imagine will be the underground tunnel network in Gaza, which amounts to something like 300 miles of cement fortified underground tunnels that fighters and materiel can be moved through. That's likely where most <coughs> of the hostages are being held now. And those tunnels were built of course, with aid money from the, the international humanitarian community whose role in this conflict virtually from the very beginning has been parasitic um, and vampiric and, uh, you know and and the aid money that went into the aid money that went into Gaza and Hamas went to building these underground tunnels it went to constructing rockets and moreover you know i, I, I don't again I, like you can't be remotely cavalier about the situation in Gaza right now which is uh, you know Gaza's under siege but the the level of naivete from the humanitarians who laugh off the rockets from Gaza that are continuing to go into Israel every day, who laugh off the massacre of Israeli civilians or shrug it off as if it's somehow inconsequential, and then uh, like, promote the most hysterical, naive accounts of the situation in Gaza can't be taken seriously. If you don't think that Hamas socked away fuel, water, other essential material in anticipation of the Israeli response to this, you're a fool. Of course they did. And this is not even, you know, not just mentioning the, the the fuel depots that the Israelis pointed to in the south of Gaza. It's just common sense. Of course, if they're going to carry out an operation like this, they're going to, you know they're going to put the kind of supplies that they need in reserve now Hamas's choice is to use those supplies to continue its war operations rather than fueling hospitals feeding gazans it, 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 that's Hamas's choice the 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 thing that i am pointing to in the larger sense is that they have a they have a, 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 a an entrenched defense built into Gaza which consists of these tunnels which consists of material held in reserve which consists of uh you know what are now these very very effective though we don't know if the Israeli defenses are going to be able to to knock them out commercial drones that are effectively transformed into aerial weapons because basically you can take a reasonably cheap commercial drone and rig it with a small amount of ordnance that becomes deadly against expensive slow moving you know relatively slow moving tanks because tanks are vulnerable it's like the top of the skull is soft the top of the tank is soft so all of these things are are and I should say in northern gaza that's where the concentration of hamas forces are going to be that's where the concentration of hamas defenses are going to be urban warfare if israel tries to go in and clear northern gaza that will be a brutal protracted in my to my mind very very strategically unwise decision to clear Northern Gaza, meaning to go essentially fight house to house through Northern Gaza to kill all Hamas leadership and, and, uh, you know, clear and hold, meaning that temporarily occupy Northern Gaza while they conduct these clearing operations. On the other hand, is Israel capable of moving a mobile force into Gaza to clear tunnel by tunnel, including by use of aerial munitions that might be able to destroy some of these tunnels, Uh, maybe. How they accomplish that with the knowledge that there are hostages in these tunnels is unbelievably fraught and difficult. But I, I would think the general military logic would be that you do these special operations raids, early on to develop the human intelligence, to know where the hostages are being held. And then you try and exfiltrate the hostages. Um it, you, you use some sort of deception operation to create a distraction, to exfiltrate the hostages as quickly as possible in a planned raid so that you can then begin the destruction of the tunnel network. All of this is like, evil and devilish in the details and um but that's the sort of that's the picture of urban warfare and and this urban warfare in particular
0: right um so isk also asks also on propaganda how should one go about finding truth in the fog of war to what extent is this even a thing one should do I'm
1: of two minds about that. One should look for truth in the fog of war, but one should not feel, one should resist the urge to become a psychic combatant in other people's wars. You know, it's bad enough to be forced into war. If you're not forced into war, you don't need to adopt the mentality, adopt an embattled or offensive mentality online or on Twitter or whatever. It's a sort of terrible psychic delusion, some kind of compensation mechanism. And I I would urge people to resist it. Um, The the method of trying to find out what's true is very difficult right now, but I, I would say try and triangulate between sources that appear to be either Try to triangulate between sources where you feel like you can read their biases, right? So if you can read the bias of a source and it's obviously pure propaganda, then you know to just eliminate it. But if you can read the bias of a source and you think to yourself, well, this person is obviously pro-Palestinian, right? There's a guy, um, what's his name? Iliad El baghdadi Mm -hmm. Do you know him on Twitter? Did a long thread the other day. That I thought was quite quite smart, yeah. right? I disagreed with a number of points in it. I, our political perspectives are uh, in opposition, but I, it was smart, and he he made some good points. Now, and he's honest; I, like he's uh,
0: he's he's not trying to sort of you know, like when we put let me put it this way, all right? <clears throat> There's when there was the hospital explosion that turned out to look like, you know, like it was a Islamic Jihad rocket that that landed in the parking lot rather than Israel, an airstrike. There was immediately like a brigade of people. And one of the most sort of like ridiculous was Noah Colwyn, who's like a podcaster, like a left-wing podcaster who tweeted out signs. It's an airstrike size of the explosion, AV evidence corresponding with JDAM strike signature. Israel saying hospitals were fair game previous, and et cetera. When somebody with absolutely no military experience or anything is all of a sudden like talking about the JDAM strike signature as if they know that's somebody who's just spouting propaganda and also just like is not cautious and like everybody makes mistakes, but like you have to have a degree of, of lack of concern for making a serious point to even get there within one day of a contested explosion that like much more serious, like, you know, uh,
1: what you'll find also is that the people who try and apply this sort of like hard nosed, real politic affect about things that they know nothing about. And, you know, some, a lot of people do it and and who you know don't actually know anything they'll turn around the next minute and be like hectoring and moralizing and and over the top and histrionic and These are people who are um they're they're shrill sort of they respond to images on screens and they and they read off scripts that they have in their head right. And they know very little. And the truth is that you, as a person who listens to our, our podcast and is interested in conversation, use your common sense. My point ultimately is yeah. like, it's better to go with somebody whose biases you can read, who's not pretending to a kind of expertise they clearly don't have. Get a few different people who seem smart, whose biases you can read, and then triangulate. And then finally, stop stop and think and use your common sense the reaction to the hospital explosion made no sense how was it that in 2 hours after the explosion there was an exact body count there was a, a press conference with th- these kinds of details available how was it that you know once the 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 airstrike was disputed like A lot of people were pointing to the subsequent Channel 4 investigation on the BBC, right, which disputed the authenticity of these, of this audio that Israel had released purportedly between two Hamas fighters discussing the failed rocket launch. Now, I don't speak Arabic and I don't know a Gazan dialect from another, from a, a Cairo dialect, right? But I saw hundreds of people online mocking the inauthenticity of the audio is if they had any ability to exercise that level of judgment. The other thing you'll notice in the channel four segment that purported to discredit that audio is that it cites independent Arabic journalists as the sources to say that the audio is inauthentic. It doesn't tell you who those journalists are or what their credentials are. So when you make a huge claim like that and then you smuggle that claim in underneath a, a sort of an opaque sourcing like that, your common sense as a reader should tell you, I I, I don't – how would I know? You, you don't have to yeah. pretend you know something you don't know.
0: Yeah, looking at the sourcing of, of a piece of journalism I think is always important, <clears throat> right? Because it, it, it sort of – can cut past like the sort of ideological filters. And then, yeah, also just like, I think finding people who seem like honest brokers who have very different opinions from yourself is always a good idea. Um, and, and also I would say you need to have a certain comfort with not knowing everything, right? You're not going That's to know everything that happened in the aftermath of a strike, right? You're not going to know everything that happened immediately afterwards. You you might not ever know everything that happened about individual instances within within this war. And this is just you know n- nonetheless, you can still um, exercise a degree of judgment and um, and have moral responses to what you're seeing and 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 and, and, and what your country is involved with, right? Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, so Kevin Westbrook asked what Netanyahu's relationship with the American foreign policy establishment is. And he sent that rhetoric where Netanyahu is saying, we are the people of light. They are the people of darkness. We shall realize the prophecy of Isaiah. And, and you know, does, does the American policy establishment care about this rhetoric coming from Netanyahu?
1: Uh, yeah, I think they do care about this rhetoric. I think that they, um, Look, they, they hate each other. I mean, it's it, the, the Obama administration and the Netanyahu people hated each other, largely to do with what I described with the American alliance with Iran, which started with Obama, uh, but also to do with other things, to do with the fact that the Americans continue to be invested in brokering, um, you know, a two-state solution or whatever it is they, they think they're doing at this point. And the Israelis are not interested in that anymore. So there's nothing, there's open enmity and hostility. And, you know, the other domestic context for this attack is that Israel has been riven by very intense political protests of the last year. And the U.S. has, you know, gone out of its way to side against Netanyahu, to, you know, Literally to the point of like Blinken weighing in on the proposed judicial reforms, which were the sort of proximate trigger of the protests in Israel. So in other words, there's a huge, extraordinarily divisive uh, split in Israel prior to the attack. And the, the sort of trigger for this cold civil war in Israel is the Netanyahu government's proposal to enact judicial reforms, which would limit the power of the Supreme Court which the Netanyahu people say acts without accountability uh, to sort of veto popular government and has a, a liberal activist agenda. And the anti-Netanyahu people say is the effective check on majoritarian government and is preserves the rights of minorities, including Palestinians. So it's, that's the framing. But it's an internal issue. This is Israel's domestic politics and the Biden administration very much in keeping with the overall policy of meddling in Israeli affairs and, and the overall policy right of meddling in the affairs of all the American client states. And I should be clear, I am opposed to the imperial American system of managing client states. I think it has been an absolute disaster for America, I think it's deeply corrosive to what it means to be an American. And so this is not just about Israel, but Israel is an extreme example, because the political symbolism and the salience of Israel, which you can see in the reactions right now, means that there's a sort of higher incentive for engaging with Israel from, from the American government. So you blink in, you know, scolding netanyahu and like telling him what he should do or you know like basically basically weighing in on internal political decisions at the same time indirectly funding the protest movement in israel so there's deep deep enmity and distrust and um and the Netanyahu speech, the speech quoting Isaiah, I, I don't know. I'm sure they're v- very unhappy with that. Uh, the You know, the Washington, D.C. people, it makes their life more difficult. They don't like the guy anyway. They So for him to be using this kind of bombastic rhetoric makes things more difficult for them. It sort of puts the... White House administration in conflict with its own internal constituency, which is, you know, repulsed by this kind of rhetoric. So I, I'm sure they're displeased with it on every level. There is a possibility that some of this this rhetorical bombast and grandiosity and and, and uh, is is a kind of faint of its own that they are building up something in order to do something else. All that being said, look, my, the, the person who I've learned the most from in terms of war and strategy is a, somebody I've written about before named Angelo Cotevilla who died a few years ago. I, I think was a very brilliant historian and American strategist and former Senate aide to Daniel Moynihan. And, and then later, a did other things, was also briefly a naval intelligence officer. And one of Code Villa's main maxims was, you know, under promise and over deliver, right? Walk softly and, and carry a big stick. And that is, that is strategic wisdom. It's not just moral. It's not just about playing to audiences. I think Israel invests far too much time Trying to like play to the American audience and play to the international audience. They are terrible at it. This is for all the talk about Hasbro, you cannot find a more tone deaf, inept group of propagandists. Israeli officials, they have no idea what they're doing. Meanwhile, you know, Hamas.
0: Harry Potter tweet.
1: it's, It's Harry Potter tweets. They're totally inept and tone deaf, they don't get it. And you know, part of this is that they're desperate for the approval of their American masters and like the people who they view as their social superiors, and they, and so it makes them sort of needy and desperate. Whereas Hamas, who's like, you know, yeah, uh, of course, uh, we we kill Jews. That's what we exist to do. Does better in the PR arena, uh, precisely because they don't. They, they're not thinking of the Western audience. They, they are, which gives them a sort of symbolic and semantic purity that people find, I say people, demented people, but many of them find very appealing.
0: Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Dennis O'Toole asks if there are any book recommendations about fiction or history about the region, the conflict that people would be welcome.
1: Uh, well, yeah. Again, I don't read Arabic, and I've I've read a lot more um, Israeli and, and Zionist literature than I than I have read anti Zionist literature. But um, yeah, I can absolutely make some recommendations. I would recommend. Uh, here's a very good book to start with. Read David Fromkin's book, "A Peace to End All Peace," which is about. World War One and the making of the modern Middle East. You cannot understand what's going on now. You cannot understand the Middle East without understanding how the Middle East as it currently exists was formed as a consequence of decisions made in the context of the First World War and of the British Great Game. Look, in a very, very brief summary, you know, the Great Game referred to the attempt to control the Central Asian corridor to India and to control resources, right, in Asia. And it was essentially Britain, France, and Russia. And the the, so so this is the grand strategy of the British Empire, right? And the British come out of the First World War as the dominant power and particularly as the dominant power in the Middle East in part – because they had invested in a policy of the Great Arab Revolt, which is where you get Lawrence of Arabia and the Hashemite kingdoms. Uh, that Arab Revolt never materialized, by the way, because the British misunderstood their Arab clients. And, and by, the, by the way, you know, they had Jewish clients and Arab clients. And there was a split between the sort of Arabist British leadership and the Zionist British leadership. So David Lloyd George, Winston Churchill were Zionists, and then there was a much larger list of British Arabists. And long story short, the British emerge with as the dominant power in the Middle East after the First World War. The Ottoman Empire, which had ruled the Middle East. I mean, for anybody who I, I you know, I don't want to insult anyone's intelligence, but there seem to be a lot of people who believe there was a country called Palestine that existed before the creation of the modern state of israel there was no country called palestine there was no palestinian national people that existed it simply didn't exist there was the ottoman empire in which palestine was a uh, a vilayet right so it was an administrative subdivision there was a you know arab and non-arab and you know uh, what what we now call palestinian uh, majority, but there had been a continual Jewish presence in Israel for 3,000 years. The Ottoman census of 1870 records there's a Jewish majority in Jerusalem in 1870. There was a, and then there was a successive waves of Zionist emigration to Israel that the very first ones were religious. I'm um, just talking about the 19th century, I'm not even talking about the attempts to return to Israel before the 19th century, but there were the religious ones that were then followed by the sort of, well, actually then followed by the Yemenite waves with Yemenite Jews coming in the 1870s, then followed by Russians fleeing the pogroms of 1881. And then the sort of classic modern Herzlian um, Zionist immigration. And the British had Arab clients or Palestinian Arab clients. And they had, Jewish clients and after world war 1 the british have the most ground forces in the middle east and they they are the dominant power in the middle east but they have to divide up the middle east with france which is the other allied power at this point and they come up with this there are a whole series of peace <coughs> agreements uh, and again da- david fromkin lays all of this out very brilliantly in his book a peace to end all peace And these peace agreements, you know, Sykes-Picot, and then there's the San Remo Conference, and there are these various conferences and peace agreements, which end up dividing the Middle East, which had been Ottoman territory, part of the Ottoman Empire, into these different principalities onto which the British graft, and and in some cases, the French graft, their preferred leadership. And that's how you get the Hashemite kingdom, Modern Jordan comes out of Transjordan. You have greater Syria. Then you have mandatory Palestine. And you you simply... The... the, the, In irresolvability, what appears to be the sort of irresolvability of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict and the general instability of Arab politics in the Middle East absent strongmen, is in some way, uh, I would say in a principal way, a direct result of the nation-state system being a grafted-on imposition of the British Empire, constructed in precisely such a way as to benefit the interests of the British Empire vis-a-vis the Great Game. right? So the, the way Transjordan uh you know the, the 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 these decisions these decisions that the british are making are not about like what are the natural or organic arrangements but there are they're about what are the interests of the British Empire but there are beneath that sympathies among different British officials for different groups like I'm saying Arabists and Zionists within British officialdom and and you really you should read that. It's important. There's a book called The Siege by Connor Cruz O'Brien, the great Irish diplomat, um, that's very much worth reading. Um, Yossi Klein-Halevi's book, Like Dreamers, um, is, uh, is very much worth reading. Um, it, it really explains the modern contours of the conflict and the modern contours of Israel as a consequence of Israel's victory in the Six-Day War. And so what you get from the Six-Day War is the growing power of the religious settler movement in Israel. And you get the occupation. You get the occupation of the West Bank, Judea and Samaria, and you get the occupation of Gaza, which had been respectively Jordanian-controlled territory and Egyptian-controlled territory before 1967. So like I'm saying, there was never a a Palestinian country. There was mandatory, there was the Ottoman Empire, then there was mandatory Palestine under the British, then the Zionists fought the British and and fought the British-trained Arab League, declared the modern state of Israel, and Egypt was controlling Gaza at that point, and Jordan was controlling the West Bank. And then after sixty seven, Israel took control of both of them. Then in 2005, under Ariel Sharon, Israel, in what was, I think people don't understand, non-Israelis don't understand, what was an incredibly sort of uh, divisive, fraught political decision inside Israel. Ariel Sharon, who was the arch right-wing politician in Israel at the time, unilaterally withdrew from Gaza. The U.S., George W. Bush in particular, almost immediately after the withdrawal, pushed for immediate elections, expecting the Palestinian Authority to win. Instead, Hamas won those elections, immediately went to war with the Palestinian Authority, and drove the entire Palestinian Authority out of Gaza. So the reason why there's no Palestinian Authority in in Gaza is because Hamas immediately purged them so it would have no political competition, and it's ruled Gaza as a, you know... Whatever you want to call it, the you know, autocratic Ikhwan jihadist group, ever since. And, um, and, and so you, you get from Halevi's book, Like Dreamers, a sort of the liberal Zionist perspective, I would say, the sort of tortured by the occupation perspective of what will be of the future of Israel after what had been this incredible victory in 1967 in the six day war that then curled into long-term occupation. And, you know, and I, and I think I have somewhat complicated feelings about, you know, I also think like the occupation is corrosive. It is corrosive to the soul of the individual, involved and it's corrosive to the soul of the nation to be an occupying force yeah. now i don't think that the i don't think as and maybe actually we'll get to this later i I think that the reason why the occupation has persisted in the form it has is not what some people might imagine, but nevertheless it doesn't ultimately the the why of it yeah it doesn't matter it's it's corrosive and it's and it's unjust um,
0: yeah
1: yeah. I, um, so I, and one other book that if you want a sort of modern context, a friend of mine, Neil Rogachevsky wrote a book recently, Israel's declaration of independence, which is a useful understanding of the founding political philosophy of Israel and the way it tries to balance these different imperatives uh, to be a Jewish state, to be a liberal democracy. Um uh, so also that one, I would say,
0: um, yeah, <coughs> I think, um, Rise and Kill First is more narrow. It's a history of um, the Mossad uh, targeted assassinations by um, Ronen Bergman is very good. Um, in terms of poets, Mahmoud Darwish is worth reading. Great Palestinian poet. Um, I've always been a Yehuda Amakai fan. Did
1: you see the uh, Darwish uh, quote that's been making the rounds lately.
0: I am the victim. No, I am the victim. Is that the one?
1: find it. It's a quote about the Darwish, who, as Phil said, was a, the great Palestinian poet as a, a quote that's been making the rounds that is um, saying that, of course I understand that the reason why the world cares about the Palestinians is because of the Jews. Um, you know, that the, hmm. the sort of overwrought or, or like the unbelievable intensity of of interest in the Palestinian cause is a reflection of the very long-standing obsession with Jews
0: yeah um, uh, also Pacific. for an American I like Philip Metris very much um, mm. uh, and has some fantastic books of poetry the um, it's a book called men in the Sun by Ghassan, uh Kanafani, which is also excellent following uh a group of palestinian refugees uh, looking for work and trying to get to kuwait where they uh want to find work. it's a novel or not it's like a longish it's a, a longish short story really they're they're looking for work in kuwait yeah. yeah yeah
1: what year is this uh
0: 1962 is when it was published yeah
1: okay um, um, so, so before the expulsion of... Yeah. <laughs> the, the expulsion of 300,000 Palestinians from Kuwait, yeah. that one?
0: Right. Um, it's just a good... It's a powerful short story that just stayed with me. Um, and uh, yeah, so we got a bunch of questions. So we're going to try and get through all yeah. of them. Um. <sighs> One one person, because I refer to it as the Israel Gaza cons- conflict, said
1: just just to just in case that point. I mean, I made it just quickly in case I made that too quickly. I mean, people might want to look up the since I know, there's a tremendous tremendous concern for uh, displacement of Palestinians. People, since you mentioned the book about um, Palestinians looking for work in Kuwait, people might want to look up the. I, I believe it's three hundred thousand. It's certainly more than two hundred thousand. The, the mass expulsion of hundreds of thousands of um, of Palestinians that occurred um, in recent memory that is a totally inconsequential bit of historical trivia that nobody cares about at all because it, it doesn't fit into pre-established political frameworks yeah. but it might be might be illuminating as to um, why certain events Get inordinate amounts of attention and, and others get uh, put in a dustbin of history right anyway i'm'm I'm not trying to be yeah.
0: uh, uh, so we had one comment uh, you yep. said I want them to attempt to defend israel 's genocidal response to an act of terrorism. I think that we already sort of def- uh, mentioned this um, you know I have grave concerns about both practical and ethical about israel 's military response. I think that calling it genocidal is um, unhelpful rhetorical inflation, um, and, and not I have grave
1: concerns about the moral and mental well-being of a political culture in which the use of genocide in reference to what's going on in Gaza is normative. I, I have, but look, it depends on what you mean by genocide, right? Earlier this year, there was a, a march for the Trans Day of Genocide right? The, the, so there was a trans day of genocide march. And um, there were slogans, and these were repeated by elected political officials. And if if you are operating within the mimetic framework that sees that as, as reasonable, then I, okay, I suppose I understand the use of genocide in this context. If, however, you're not, and I don't assume that this question asker is, you know, this question asker might be the kind of person who would agree that uh trans day of genocide is inflated rhetoric, but would point out that, you know, there are massive amounts of ordinance being dropped on Gaza right now. I would just, I would ask you what other conflicts in the last 10 or 15 years you would point to as genocides. So I can understand what your standard is for genocide. Like, the Rohingya, what's going on in Tigray, Sudan, I, 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 you know, the, the mass internment of Uyghur Muslims by the Chinese, like where, show me, um, if you will, what your standard is for genocide. And then I, I could at least have a, a better appreciation for what's meant by the question. What I hear in the question is not, a concern for the scale of devastation to Gaza. I don't hear a concern for the massive catastrophic loss of life, including civilian life, which I, I would never minimize, which I don't think anyone should be callow about, but I, I see the use of genocide in that context as, an expression of two things which are related. One is an expression of the underlying ideological, political attempt to delegitimize Israel and convince the Israelis to lie down and die and accept their own deaths. I hear the accusations of genocide leveled against Israel in precisely the same register that I see people tearing down posters of Israeli hostages or slapping occupier labels over them. That's a effort undertaken by a, at this point, well-established admixture of, uh, you know, first and second generation um, Palestinian or, or Arab nationals whose grievances, frankly, I don't find that hard to understand. And, progressives who have worked themselves up into a kind of discursively worked themselves up into a kind of frenzy where they need to prove their revolutionary bona fides. Now we've been carrying out this sort of play acting cultural revolution for a decade. And, and this, I think for many people is a glorious opportunity to like go through with it and prove that they meant it. And that's the way I understand the, the the genocide label being applied here. Look, with all of these terms, also, one has to point out that Israel was being accused of genocide before this war also, right? So if you if you listen to a lot of Palestinian activists and their supporters in the West, Israel was being accused of carrying out a genocide against Gazans before this war started in the same way. That after ending the occupation of Gaza in 2005, Israel was still accused of occupying Gaza. So Israel occupies Gaza, it's an occupier. Israel unilaterally withdraws from Gaza, it's an occupier. Israel is not at war with Gaza or Hamas and is actually lulled into what the Hamas leadership has now acknowledged. They carried out, you know, a kind of brilliant deception plan, right? If you listen to the interviews with Hamas leaders, they say we spent like the last year convincing the Israelis we were interested in accommodation and negotiation. And as a result of that, and that we were rational actors, just like Robert Malley said, and as a result of that, you know, Netanyahu had increased the number of work permits for Gazans. And all of this was part of a deception plan to get the Israelis to drop their guard to carry out the attack. So Israel is, you know, in a position of trying to negotiate with uh, the government of Hamas and increase work permits and, and you know, relieve uh, the the blockade. That's genocide. But now this is also genocide. It's the, the Degree uh, to which I don't care one way or the other what the people who are making these claims think or feel, I-, I can't overstate. I think it might be the most important thing to get across here. I'm there are there's a conversation that is necessary to have, and there's another conversation that's just an attempt to entice. Israelis and Jews into a, a sort of hypnotic dance to their own death. And I, I'm not going to like follow along the, the Western people, the the, the Americans who want to unmake themselves and who want to carry out their own elaborate, uh, revolutionary death ritual because to atone for the sins of the past. I am. I'm not interested in engaging in any of that. And um, so if that, if your framework for genocide is, if Israel does it, it's genocide. Um, then I I think that you are in conversation with Americans. That's a, that's an American conversation. Maybe it's also a European conversation, um, but it's not a conversation that I'm, I'm really interested in being part of past answering this question, which I feel like I've done.
0: Yeah. <clears throat> DeHarker also said, it's amazing how few, few, few places the discussion that Israel-Palestine conflict can't even mention Palestine now. It's just Gaza. Uh, soon it won't be, even be Gaza. as Israel completes her decades-long mission, Lebanon, Jordan, and Egypt next. Um, and That's just in response to me referring to it as the Israel Gaza conflict. I think it's pretty clear. Cool so, so that the decades
1: long mission. Sorry, so the Lebanon, Egypt, and
0: Jordan. Yeah, I'm not sure what their decade. It's their.
1: So, the, so I think that's a reference to the idea that you know there is a that the real plan in among Israelis is um, to like go all the way to the Tigris or to the Euphrates and uh, reconstitute like a a biblical empire essentially, you know, to the um to the birthplace of Abraham. But um yeah, I mean I that's that's not true. There's no desire to I mean the funny thing about that also is that like Jordan is functionally a Palestinian state at this point. The queen of Jordan is Palestinian. Jordan is now majority um, Palestinian Jordan's also at peace with Israel and a fragile peace that's holding for now. Egypt, which you know, holds the other side of the blockade against Gaza, um, lest lest people think that the blockade on Gaza is only from the north. The Egyptians blockade Gaza from the south because they don't want either and this was before the war started, they don't want Palestinian migrants coming into egypt and settling there they don't want palestinians in egypt and they definitely don't want muslim brotherhood um hamas uh supporting palestinians in egypt um but uh yeah i mean i mean look the you can the the idea that you can't talk about palestine or palestinians to me is false on two levels there's not a palestine to talk about and the so i don't know what that means that you can't talk about palestine there you could talk about the palestinian authority you could talk about gaza you could talk about the interests of palestinians and in fact as i pointed out the biden administration was talking about all of that much more than the trump administration had been doing now you can say they weren't talking about it enough and that's a reasonable argument but you have to acknowledge that in relative terms The Palestinians have been getting more attention over the last two years, not less. That's the first part. The second part is um, whatever news sources you're seeing that are telling you that Israel's ultimate ambition is to conquer Egypt and and Jordan and Lebanon, all I can tell you is that if you're actually concerned with sort of religious expansionist politics in Israel, you should focus on the real threat, right? Which is, yeah, there really is a desire in Israel. You know, there really is a segment of Israelis who want to take back Gaza. There really is a segment of Israelis who want all of Judea and Samaria under unilateral Israeli control and to never use the term West Bank again. And like that really exists, okay? See, that's worth talking about. The Egypt, Jordan, Lebanon stuff is just... Uh, it's just sort of paranoid fantasy. Okay,
0: so Zahi Kakesh says, What do each of you believe is a reasonable solution to the conflict in general, i.e., a two state solution, etc.?
1: I, I mean, if I thought a two state solution was viable, I would. Th- I believed in a two state solution for a long time. I believe in the theoretical principle of a two state solution. I think that the fact that there is no Palestinian state reflects the decisions made by Palestinian leadership above all. And if you consider the fact that if you look at the way Yasser Arafat right ran the Palestinian Authority, ran Fatah for the decades in which he had unilateral control over it, what you see is that there was no interest in state building in an institution building and it's not plausible to argue that this was all the result of israeli intransigence it's not the plausible it's not meaningful to argue that this was all the result of arafat trying to bargain for something better in fact arafat ran the territory under his control like a clan leader like a chieftain he died with you know, I forget the exact amount of money. With I, I, th- I think it was was four hundred million, with hundreds of millions of dollars scattered throughout bank accounts throughout the world. Now, the interesting thing is, he what he didn't live lavishly, right? So, the claim I'm making is not that Arafat socked all this money away instead of spending it on building up Palestinian institutions, Palestinian civic institutions, the rudiments of a Palestinian state because he was personally greedy. That's manifestly not the case. He did not live uh, like a lavish lifestyle, right? The reason why he put all this money away, and I, I urge people to read David Samuel's long profile of or sort of memorial for Arafat in the Atlantic from years ago. The reason why he put all this money away and used the money in this way was that he doled out the money in a patronage system to keep people loyal to him, to keep people loyal to his coterie of leadership, because that was how he ran the territory under his control. That was his desire and ambition. Why did he do that? Did he do that because he didn't want a a Palestinian control or authority? No, he did it because he didn't want a state. What he did want ultimately was to see the Jews driven out of Israel which is the same thing Hamas wants and is what they believe will happen. This is the way in which the strategy makes sense is if you understand that they are looking at this, Hamas is looking at this like they they only have to make life unbearable enough and, and sort of outlast the Jews and that eventually the Jews and the Zionists will leave and they'll go back to russia or poland or brooklyn or wherever right never mind the the fact that the majority of israel is middle eastern descent you know from yemen iraq
0: morocco uh
1: at at this point right forget about that this is still the underlying belief right it's the belief that just like the french were driven out of algeria by enough terror and returned to the metropole the Jews will be driven out of Israel and, and returned to the, wherever they're from. Now, in point of fact, the Jews are historically from the land of Israel, as all of the archaeological and genealogical and historical records attest, despite the like truly bizarre Stalinist attempt to write that out of history. But even if you leave that aside, even if you say, OK, forget about like. The, the, the long history and the Jewish history and the Arab conquest and all that, and just look at the modern history, right? The fact that Jews are also settler colonialists, right? Like the Zionist attempt to pretend that there's no, or, or the current Jewish attempt to pretend that there's no settler colonial dimension of the creation of the modern Israeli state is absurd and, and self-defeating and is belied by the actual, founding texts of zionism and by the way for the reading list another book i would recommend is the zionist ideas arthur Hertzberg's sort of seminal compilation of different zionist writers and you know there is an explicit settler colonial dimension to to early zionism just as there is also a de-col- decolonial dimension to early zionism like we are going to avenge being kicked out by the romans we're going to avenge uh, being displaced and we're going to return to our land which we have prayed to for millennia which we maintained the central vital role in all of our cultural and religious rituals for all this time and then they succeed in kicking out the British when they come back and defeat the, the British trained and funded Arab armies. That's a long-winded way of saying that I, I so so what do the Palestinians want? I think the Palestinians want control over all of the land. And when like, you see this Washington Square Park demonstration from a few days ago, where you you have hundreds of people, NYU students, um, like the, the embodiment of the sort of like, professional managerial class and client coalition, and they're chanting, uh, we don't want no two states, we want all of it. They are channeling both Hamas and the Palestinian Authority quite directly. So take them at their word. That's true. There is a very sort of thin gruel of, ah, we want like one state with equal rights for all. That's a absurdist fantasy that um, nobody here has any time for. Like nobody here on either the Palestinian or the Jewish side believes that for a second Um, in, in that sort of way of framing it this is a very long-winded saying of a long-winded way of saying like i don't believe that the two-state solution works because i i see neither a organic desire for it nor an interest in it from the palestinian leadership there may have been an an ability to cultivate more of a genuine Palestinian civic movement. I I don't know if that was possible. I know that the approach taken by the West and by the Israelis was cynical and self-defeating in this regard, and that the Israelis were simultaneously making legitimate offers. You know, the the offer at Taba to, to Yasser Arafat, right? Like there were a continuous series of offers and there's a revisionist account to, to deny all this now. But the, the bottom line is like, you know, there was not a Palestinian counteroffer. There was just maximalism and intransigence and a general refusal to negotiate. And that brings us to where they are. All I, I don't know what a just solution would be. I know that occupation is unjust. Yeah. I know that Palestinians living inside Israel know, who are the polling shows are like overwhelmingly against the Hamas attack and where there have been real strides made in, in integration in recent years, um, that they need to be treated as, as full citizens, that there's a real, look, let me take a breath. It's hard for me to sort of uh, collect my thoughts because I'm trying to say a lot at once, but there's another sort of big picture point I need to make. The conversations about Israeli apartheid or Israeli treatment of Palestinians, the, the failure of this framework in the, in the most fundamental sense is you cannot be having a civil rights conversation at the same time that you're at war. It doesn't work. These are incommensurable, in, in, incompatible categories, right? There is a war for survival, for extermination going on with Hamas. Um there is a another sort of war. You know, the Palestinian Authority has like repeatedly praised um Hamas. there, there are huge demonstrations in support of Hamas actions. Demonstration today calling for the killing of Jews mm-hmm. in in Ramallah. And there is a so war. That has never- islands,
0: <clears throat> right against Palestinians. So there's sort of like In the West Bank, there
1: there is settler violence against Palestinians, and there's Palestinian violence against settlers. And the Israeli authorities have failed to stop both of those. But look, look, I, I, I am not trying to minimize settler violence. But there is also there was the biggest spate of terrorist attacks against Jews coming from the West Bank since the Second Intifada a year ago, and it received zero coverage in the Western press right? Like there was no interest in this. There were seven people gunned down on the street. There was the knife attack killing. There was a, a whole series and, and there's settler violence and there is, uh, yes. And, and, and both of these things are occurring. And, um, and I, I think that the most important thing for Israel now, which is what I can speak to, is to be, come up with like a just, be just towards the people that it is taking control over and that you can't do that through occupation. So, you know, you can't, I mean, I would rather see uh, complete separation, right, total separation, unilateral withdrawal from the West Bank, just like in Gaza, I would rather see that than, endless occupation. And I would rather see that with an offer made to Palestinians that you can take Israeli citizenship and, you know, that there can be an absorption into Israel. I would rather that than what's going on now, which is corrosive to both security and the sort of internal spiritual health of the nation. But the other option, which I... I, I think that maybe the one that wins out now is there's just going to be continued warfare. There, it's Look, you have to look at this as a war that's never ended on some level. That's what it is on some level. and And, and when wars end, they produce resolutions, right? And those resolutions can be more or less just, but they result from the some kind of denouement, some kind of conclusion to the war. These wars have never ended. And part of the reason why they've never ended is Jewish intransigence. Part of the reason why they've never ended is Palestinian intransigence. And a large part of the reason why they've never ended is a a sort of Western obsession with this conflict and an installation of a whole network of Parasitic NGOs and parasitic peace frameworks that have frozen the conflict, that have subsidized Palestinian intransigence, that have subsidized uh, Palestinian terror, right? Directly subsidized Palestinian terrorism against Israel, which the U.S. contributes to as well. And you freeze a conflict that way. You sort of you don't allow it to reach its natural resolution. And you do that out of purportedly humanitarian motives. And the people engaged may very well believe in their humanitarian motives, but the outcome has been grotesque.
0: So we have Felix Wilson send a question. He said, I'm interested in your thoughts on Hamas's tactics and their goals in adopting ISIS type pure horrific terror. It seems a real step from hijackings and rocket attacks, bombings, etc. Are they provoking an Israeli response in a calculating way, and or has the nihilistic extreme edge of Saudi fundamentalism spread into adjacent organizations after the destruction of the caliphate through individuals spreading out? I've been appalled at the callous disregard for human life among many left friends and acquaintances when the victims are in Israel, whether Jewish or citizens or not, but looking back at the indifference to the Rushdie stabbing and lack of attention, it seems a harbinger of sorts."
1: Look, I'll take the second part first. I have not been surprised by the left's reaction. I I just found all of this perfectly consistent with the ideology of the last decade. If you were engaged in rhetorical dehumanization of white men, of occupiers and settlers and people from privileged castes, if you were engaged in, you know, like officially elite sanctioned dehumanization if you're engaged in a sort of maximalist decolonial rhetoric then why would this be surprising so it hasn't surprised me at all and I don't say that in a self-satisfied way I am horrified by it but I also think that it's the culmination of a very obvious logic and I also think it's not It's a good reason for Israel to separate itself from the U.S. more. The U.S. needs to work its own problems out. The U.S. is going to be consumed by this stuff. The the people tearing down posters of Jewish hostages, the projection of glory to the martyrs at George Washington University, the NYU law, Law Society leader who refuses to condemn Hamas and and is also was one of the people on video tearing down posters of Jewish hostages. The chance of from the river to the sea an Intifada, and we don't we don't want two states. We want all of it. Uh, by the way, that's relatively tame compared to what you've seen in your Euro- European capitals. In Sydney, the chants of gas the Jews in front of the opera house. Um, I, I I don't view it as surprising, but I view it as um, a, a manifestation of a political culture developing in the US for a long time and has institutional capture at this point um, so the first part of that I think it's an error to see the Hamas Hamas is tied to the Saudis the Saudis are actually a you know believe it or not a restraining force at this point and the the ideology of Hamas has never been Saudi Wahhabism, right? It was more Egyptian, uh, Ikhwan Muslim brotherhood and, and later supplanted by the sort of Khomeinist, uh, Khomeinist, like Iranian permanent revolution, global Islamic revolution. And I think that the, the degree of savagery in the attack was a, a um was a expression of the like the 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 culture of the the people who participated in it who i think um took glee in carrying out massacres.
0: Like, they, um, they regularly launch missiles at, at civilian areas, right? Deliberately trying to kill civilians. This is nothing new. It's just that we're sort of inured to it and we think that, you know, there's the Iron Dome and it doesn't provoke the same amount of disgust because they haven't been successful. Um, but them desiring to just kill as many people as possible is not a new thing. It's just that they achieved what was probably even to them a startling success and now there's going to be the consequences i think they
1: achieved a startling success i also think that there was a ritual desecration a kind of orgiastic rape disfigurement mutilation of children
0: yeah
1: uh, you know a a, an evil of the kind of reveling in, in killing children in front of their parents and parents in front of their children that in part is you know like that's the culture of this organization and the culture of the people who came in after the Hamas fighters apparently to, to also yeah. partake and but it was also like they were building up for a long time to a big attack and when they found soft targets they just went as far as they could you know I don't I, I think that that is really part of it as well
0: I, I, I do also want to. I, I just sort of, I think it, in terms of, you know, where I come to, the, I think I probably am much more sympathetic to a left critique. Well, I definitely am more sympathetic to a left critique of, of Israel um, than you are and for other things. But I, I have been, and I know a lot of other people, people on the left who consider themselves on the left more so than me. Who have been disgusted. There was a debate in dissent over whether or not we should grieve the Israeli victims of the attack. Gabriel Winant arguing that dead Jews were already ideological fodder for the IDF so we could consider them pre-grieved. And the idea, I mean, first off, it's just tactically stupid. Because if you refuse to express horror at something that horrible, you invite widespread repugnance because of your uh, apparent lack of humanity. But just, it's it's enraging and revolting. One of those posters was torn down in my neighborhood, right? Of like, a mother and her two small children about the age of my child. And i it, it, the mind reels at somebody who thinks that that's a good idea. And I think that there has been a lot of apologetics and mockery of anybody who points out an anti-Semitism problem on the left or anybody who um, has genuine problems with the sort of extremist rhetoric. And it is you know, it's all, it's all been really fun in games. You know, I think that it's all been in people's heads and, and, um, and right now it just seems really repugnant. It's just, it is absolutely disgusting to see. And I'm not, and yeah, people are like, Oh, who cares about a bunch of students in, in Harvard? There's a lot of incidents. There's a lot of incidents. There is a, there is a, um, pro palestinian protest on Saturday that is named after the Hamas operation, right? Where is that protest taking
1: place? Right.
0: In a heavily Jewish neighborhood. neighborhood. Yes, in a Jewish neighborhood. And I'm not interested in apologetics for it.
1: Yeah, I I agree. But I I mean, I agree in principle, of course, but I just... it feels very outside of my um, – just feels outside of what I care about at this point. And it seems, uh, I don't know, insignificant for me. I'm not saying it is insignificant. I just mean um, – well, I don't think it's insignificant. I, I just – people who can't figure that out on their own, I, I am not uh, – I'm not convinced can be brought to reason by anything, but some terrible shock. Yeah. One other thing I, I would like to say, cause I feel like I didn't, I didn't answer. Um, I didn't answer it properly. And that's like, you know, Zahi's question. I, I, you know, I think, and this was, we should link to that Hussein Mansoor thread. Actually, we ran it in the scroll yesterday yeah. as a standalone essay, so we can link to that. But, i think you, that i think that the 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 there needs to be coexistence between israelis and palestinians and and that that is a moral and strategic necessity and that um and that you know israel cannot just um can't just sort of fortress itself off like that hasn't worked, and um, and I don't know what that looks like ultimately, but um, it doesn't look like stupid TikTok appeals to to Western yep. audiences. I'll tell you that, and it doesn't look like um, the sort of the BB speeches lately. But okay, all right, thanks, Jake. All right, man.